Let's pray. Lord, we invite you and we ask right now that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. And as we see, Lord Jesus, you through a different lens, Lord, your life was lived in such a way to teach us this next lesson, to teach us this next discipline. And I pray, God, that our stance and our spirit would be of a servant, of someone who looks at the needs of others and says, this is how we can give our lives away, God. We invite you now in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, shame on you. Many of you should see this movie. It is a great Christmas movie, and I think that because I picked this clip, we got the snow, so it might be my fault. Um, We're continuing on a series we started off a few weeks back called Top Gear. Now, Top Gear is a car show, one of the most watched car shows in the entire world, and I said to you that the metaphor for this series is, is to look at your spiritual life and think of it like a car engine. How is it running, right? Like everyone woke up this morning and uh, was looking for a scraper or was trying to figure out how to start the car. One poor individual's car didn't start until someone came over and gave him a jump, right? Welcome to Canada. Well, that's kind of what we want to look at our, our spiritual lives and say to ourselves, okay, does it make sense? Like how is it running? Are we seeing any kind of growth? Are we seeing anything like that, right? And so that's what we've been kind of looking at for the last uh, couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, uh, I want to recap where we were so we can kind of move on there. We looked at the story of Cain and Abel, and I said to you that the story of Cain and Abel was the first discipline in the Bible it's spoken of, right? Remember, Genesis chapter 1 to 3 is the creation account and fall, right? In Genesis chapter 4, we start off and we read this passage about Cain and Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought, some, uh, brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Right? You look at that passage, and, uh, and it's kind of like, well, why? What, what, what separated Abel's offering from Cain's offering? And we kind of unpack that, right? Remember I said to you last time, uh, two weeks ago, that in the Bible, there is an operating system, right? Remember, you have a computer, whether it's a PC or, an, or a Mac, you have an operating system that runs in the background, right? And you don't even, you're not even aware of its existence, right? Well, in the, old, in the Bible... The Hebrew culture, how uh, the Jewish people live, is their operating system, right? And so somebody who is Hebrew would read this and would understand immediately what's going on here. For us, Gentiles, we look at me like, is God being arbitrary here? Yes, I like Abel. Cain, I don't like. Ha, ha, ha. Now you guys figure out why, right? No, but we unpacked this story. We saw it was a type of offering, right? Well, Cain just brought whatever he had lying around. Abel took the first part there. And we looked at this concept called the law of first fruits. I said to you that in the Bible, there is this, there is this um, action that takes place that, that the, the, the people there would understand that when they would bring a harvest in, that, that the first part of that harvest belonged to the Lord. And not just the first part, but the best part belonged to God. Right? We looked at some scriptures that talked a little bit about that from Proverbs 3 and Leviticus. But we, what we really understood here is the law of first fruits happens all over the place in the Bible. And not just in the Old Testament, but it happens in the Gospels, and it happens from the book of Acts onward. We looked at that passage from the Didache, which is a first century document that was to the early church there. And in that, in the, in that document, we saw that the first fruits, right, is this idea of saying, hey, God, you have blessed me with whatever I have. I give back a portion to you. And we talked about how in the Old Testament, it was a... Um, 
it was a bartering system, right? Here's my wheat, give me a cow or a goat or whatever, right? It would be bartering animals. But in the New Testament, the Romans came along and introduced this concept called money. And so what would happen then is that with a, with a farmer bringing their harvest in once a year, giving their first fruits, in the New Testament, what would happen is people would get paid with money, right? And so the Romans said, now this coin with the emperor's image is equivalent to this. And so we saw that how the offering and the tithe and the offering kind of transformed a little bit. We talked even about the terms tithe and offering, right? It's, it's terms we don't quite understand, right? Tithe comes from the old English word tenth. Right? And in the Bible, it says that the first tenth of anything belonged to God. But the offering was that that's something above and beyond that. So the Israels, the Israelites were told to give a tenth of their offering to God, a tenth of their tithe to God. But then they then were told to set aside 20%. So they actually gave a third of what they, what they took in to God. And that 20% was when you meet people who are poor and impoverished or in need, that's the offering. You take that and you help them out, right? Or... For the Old Testament, it was the sin offering. It was going to the temple and saying, I have sinned, therefore I present to this animal this thing which I have paid for to, to atone for my sin, right? So that's the concept that we looked at. And we, we kind of drew some lessons from that, right? We, and we, we really t- took this from Abel's offering, right? Our offering should be from the first fruits of our life, right? As soon as you get that paycheck, you say to yourself, Lord, I give back to you what is, what, what, what is rightfully yours, Right? And that we see that in Abel, we see that throughout the entire Bible. We give of our possessions so as not to allow our possessions to control our hearts. I said to you last time that Jesus' teaching could really be uh, broken down into a couple of categories. A third of his teaching was on money and possessions. Because Jesus understood how you spend your money, how you spend your resources reflects your heart. That's just, that's just, that's the way it goes, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be, right? So Jesus talks about that. And finally, we said, our offering is an act of faith. We looked at Hebrews chapter 11, and Hebrews 11 is the chapter of faith. Incredible men and women in this chapter talked about acts of faith. Well, Abel is mentioned in Hebrews 11. Remember, this guy only occupies a couple of verses in the Bible, and the writer of Hebrews comes back to Abel and says, Abel's offering was an act of faith. Right? Why is it an act of faith? Because when you give God the first fruits, you don't know what's going to happen two weeks from now. Do I need that? Am I, am I going to fall short? Right? It's like, what am I doing? You are, you are by an act of faith of saying, Lord, this rightfully belongs to you. And I'm going to give it to you because I'm not going to allow possessions or anything to kind of uh, take a hold of my heart. I release it to you. Right? So that's kind of what we talked about last week. And that's kind of where we've uh, been. I'm going to show you a little chart here. We talk about this at UCC, but let me kind of show you what I kind of think is happening in our culture today, right? We talk about at UCC our time, our talents, and our treasures, right? This is how we categorize your life. Everybody gets 24 hours a day. Nobody, doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, you still get 24 hours a day, right? Every person in this room has talents, Everybody has talents. And treasure is not just simply monetary, but it's, it's, it's what you do, right? It's like everybody has something, right? In this room, again, are, are the richest people in the world, right? We may not think of ourselves as rich, but compared to the rest of the population of the globe, we are wealthy, right? So we talk about our time. We say to ourselves, when people have, when they look at their time, what I hear most often is, I'm really busy, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Like, you know, uh, I'd love to get together with you. I'd love to connect with you. I'm scheduling right now for 2017. So let's, let's, let's really let's put that in our calendars. But let's put a little question mark beside that because, you know, things happen. Our talents, what's interesting about our talents is, is that 
you may have a job, and maybe it's a, a working at in retail, right? If your talent is interpretive dance, you don't get to really kind of let that you know ride out. You don't get to show up one day with a tutu on, like I have a talent of interpretive dance, like. That's great because you go to the cash register and help that customer, right? Our talents can be hidden within us. We don't get paid to do our talents. But for most people, I think that we don't, really, we don't even really kind of scrape the surface of the abilities that God's given us, right? We have talents, but we're not really kind of maximizing them. And our treasure, well, you know, our treasure, if we can actually be honest there, is actually we're probably a little bit even beyond that, right? Like we spend way more than we take in, right? We are uh, above capacity. And I would say that this would be a, a diagram of 95% of, of people who live in North America. This is, this is our lives. We are over capacity. We, we are living over capacity. We are, we, have, we are inundated by so many different obligations and things that we, this person here I would say has zero capacity to serve. Right, if the opportunity to serving comes along, this person is unable to. Why? Because they are so occupied. So what we have to do is have to take a look at this graph and say, okay, how do we really want to look at it? Right? And I would say to you that your time, if you schedule every second of the day, right, that's not really giving you an opportunity to serve. Right? What we have to say is that we need to kind of give ourselves uh, a great phrase, uh, I like it's called margin. Giving ourselves a little bit of a margin so that we don't, we, we are not so, uh, we have our capacity. For our talent, I would say that we need to kind of start using a more of what God's given us, right? Our, our talents, and again, not just simply in our occupation, what we get paid for, but find another part of that. And treasure, well, treasure, we have to kind of step back and say, okay, how do we look at this, right? This person has a capacity to serve. You know, right now, in our culture, we are talking about refugees. We're talking about uh, the refugee crisis taking place. And regardless of uh, your opinion on that, what we have to always have is a heart of compassion. And we have to say these people are fleeing from violence, from suffering. And, and we say to ourselves, okay, as a country, we, we want to respond mercifully. Right? And, and, and depending on, on your political bent and all that, there are responsible ways to do that. But we really want to have that kind of a heart. But what's interesting to me is everyone's talking about that. And everyone's like, yes, I want to help. I want to help. What about the refugees that already live in the city? What about people who are already here right now? What about the single mothers? What about people who are in distress? What about people right now? See, it's interesting how our, the media or our, our attention gets grabbed by a tsunami, by this crisis, by this. And people go, yes, I want to help out with that. But it's like we don't realize that that need is still here even though we're not being, our attention is not being drawn to it. Like we don't have to kind of go to look over there and say, oh, there's refugees there because they've been in this city for decades, right? They've, it's not as if we are, we're without that. We're not without people of need. And so when we talk about service, we have to say to ourselves, let's not just talk about what everyone else is talking about. Let's kind of redefine that. Um, when we talk about a definition of serving, one definition I came across, well, because I wrote it, um, it was this. To, uh, submitting yourself to the needs of another with no expectation of repayment. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, serving. Submitting yourself to the needs of another with no expectation of repayment. Now, that word submitting, the reason I chose that word is because as I read about serving in the early church there, there is an act of submission. We, as North Americans, we tend to be entitled, we tend to be coddled, we tend to be spoiled a little bit. So this idea of submitting ourselves to anyone kind of repulses us. We're like, what? How that, why would I do that? Right? 
But when you look at serving in the early church, when you look at it through historically through Christianity, you say to yourself, wow, there's a group of men and women that decided that they were going to submit themselves to the needs of others. The Greek word uh, to serve in the New Testament actually means to wait upon someone, to attend to someone. It is akin to the word for slave or servant. It has sometimes been translated minister to. So when we talk about serving, what we're really saying here is that this is a concept of 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 of, of submitting yourselves to somebody who has no choice. And Jesus actually kind of clarifies it. Jesus says to the disciples, what good is it if you love those who love you? Don't the pagans do that? Can you love those who hate you? That's the Jesus metric of, of serving. That's the Jesus metric of love. Right? Every one of you have friends and family that you love, that care about you. And if they ask you to do something, you're like, of course. But can you do that for somebody who, can, who, who will never repay you, who may not even be in a relationship with you? Um, there's a guy named uh, Donald Whitney, and he wrote this about serving, which I thought was really uh, an incredible thought. One way the gospel turns sinners into servants is by humbling their pride. The gospel shows us what Christ did for sinners and how blessed we are to, re- to be received into his kingdom and family. As a result of understanding this incomparable message and experiencing God through it, People willingly serve him and his gospel. So one of the clearest indications that a person has believed the gospel of Jesus is that his selfish desire to be served begins to be overcome by a Christ-like desire to serve. Now, one of the things I love about this is there's two concepts that Donald really picks up on with serving. The first one is the humbling of the pride. Right? The stance of a servant is not an arrogant stance. It is a humble stance. But the second thing he says is that one of the clearest indications that you've really encountered Jesus is your desire to serve. Is your desire to serve. Right? And that, like, that is amazing to me. Because the opposite of serving is not inactivity. The opposite of servant is not inactive or even lazy. The opposite is proud and selfish. Right? We think of serving and we're going, oh, I, I can't serve. Well, I'm, I'm busy or I'm lazy. Or I'm like, no, 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 no. According to the scriptures, according to Jesus' life, the opposite of serving is actually pride and arrogance. Something which I think runs rampant in my life, absolutely, but also in, I think in this culture in general. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. We're going to unpack a, uh, a moment in time in Jesus' life, and we're going to kind of take a look at it. We're going to drill down a little bit here to kind of see what's happening. Now, John chapter 13 is um, Jesus knows he's about to die, right? Remember, sometimes what happens in the Gospels is, is as important as the geography, where it happens, but also the timing of it as well, too. John chapter 13 is Passover is about to approach, right? Remember, by John chapter 17, Jesus has his high priestly prayer, uh, prayer in the garden, right? So a couple of chapters later, Jesus knows his time has come. So John chapter 13 is important because... Jesus is trying to accelerate the disciples' teaching, right? And then John chapter 13, this is an incredible moment takes place. I want to kind of unpack it because it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. In John chapter 13, verse 1, it says this. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, remember, uh, the Gospel of John is written by John, Jesus' disciple, whom he loved, right? And so John is saying this about Jesus, that Jesus loved them to the end. Like, like, like John might as well be saying, Jesus loved me to the end of his life, right? It's like, 
it's, it's a pretty powerful, uh, it's a pretty powerful uh, view of Jesus' life that he loved those God had given him. He loved people to the very end of his life. Um, and so John is kind of setting the table, kind of giving us an idea of what it looks like. Now take a look at verses 3 and 5. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and they had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and drying them with a towel that he had wrapped around him. Now, a couple things here. Remember I told you about the Jewish operating system that's running in the Bible here? The disciples understand what Jesus is doing here, right? Now, a couple things, right? Middle Eastern Palestine. No roads, hot, dusty, animals sharing sidewalks with people. It gets dirty. When you go into a a person's home, and if they're a bit wealthy, they would have a servant there, right? Whether it's a Roman or a Pharisee, they would have a servant at the door. And the servant would have a clothing on them, right? And the clothing they'd have on them is just a... a, a, um, a simple shift, just like a simple um, gown, gown you get the idea right and it's 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 an article of clothing that gets dirty right so when you come into a person's home there's two parts of your body they're going to wash the first is your feet because they're disgusting right you've been walking through roads and all that right so they'll wash your feet but the second part they'll wash is your hands because you're going to touch things you may even eat right so your hands should be clean right but that servant is at the door and he's got a towel around his waist now Think about, the, think about the image here, right? The servant is going to wash your feet, use his towel to wash it, to clean his hands, but also clean your feet as well too, right? So it's a stance of a servant, right? Now, Jesus takes off his outer cloak, right? In the Hebrews, right, the cloak was a mantle of, of importance. Remember the prodigal. When the prodigal comes back to the father, what does the father do? Get the disgusting clothes off him and put a, put a cloak back on him. It shows authority. It shows position, Jesus takes authority position and removes that from him and adopts the stance of a servant, right? And so the disciples understand what's happening here. We uh, Gentiles, thousands of years displaced, may not quite get it. So Jesus is taking off his outer cloak and he's beginning to wash their feet. Now, of course, now look at uh, Simon Peter, my man, right? He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Right? It's interesting, right? Because Peter, Jesus is the rabbi. He's the teacher, right? His position is elevated amongst the 12, right? It's like, for example, for us today, we, we understand corporate hierarchies, right? We know the CEO or CFO is at the top of the company. Well, that individual doesn't grab a mop and clean the bathrooms, right? Why? Because they're powerful, they're, they're mighty, they are at the top of the company, they make decisions, they got high-level decisions, right? That's not their role. Imagine that individual going through and cleaning the stalls in a bathroom. You'd be like, what? Right? That stance of humility that they're able to do that, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus, the, the person who enacted these incredible miracles, who, who, who spoke and did things, that same individual now is going to make himself the lowliest servant, right? Because the other thing you may not realize is the servant at the door is the servant who is the least capable, right? Because you want your more capable servants in the kitchen, right? Because you want the food preparation to go properly. You want the servant who can clean properly your bedrooms and all that. You want that person there. The person at the door... All you got to do is touch people's dirty feet, 
right? That's the lowliest servant in the hierarchy of, of servants. And so Jesus is now making that thing. Right? So, of course, Peter, Simon Peter, this is a guy that either strikes out or hits a home run, right? And in this particular one, he's striking out. He's like, like, Lord, no way, no way. You know, you do not do this for me. And what is Jesus' response? Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Look at verses 12 to 14 now. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Like, you just, you just, you just get that sense there, right? Where the disciples are like, what is he doing, right? Like, Again, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to these guys. I feel so sorry for the disciples because Jesus did not act like any rabbi, like any teacher of the law they had ever met before, right? Like, I forgive them for their, like, I don't know what is going on here, right? Uh, you know, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. He wants bread. Get him bread. Get him bread. Like, no, right? And I also understand why Jesus kind of scolded them a little bit as well, too, right? Because they, they had no idea what this guy was doing. Now look at uh, Jesus' response in verses 15 to 17. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There's a couple of lessons I think that we, we can draw from Jesus' uh, example here. The first one is, at the beginning of this, it says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. It's a statement of authority. It's a statement of place. But yet, look at this. Serving comes from security in who and what we are. If serving is the stance of a servant, of humility, of, 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 of taking our pride and removing it, but it's not removing who we are. Like, there's a part of us that kind of, we want to be elevated, right? We want our Facebook profiles, our, our Instagram, our LinkedIn, our Snap, whatever social media, we get to choose the pictures that happen on that, on that page there, right? Wouldn't it be interesting if someone else got to take your picture? Like your first one, you wake up in the morning, huh? and that would be your, your picture, right? Like it doesn't really work that way, right? We get to modify how people see us. We get to kind of choose the, the, the way we want to be seen, right? We are always elevating our appearance because that's what's important to us. Well, Jesus transforms that and says, listen, okay, that pride that you have in yourself is not going to lead you to the kingdom of heaven. But the thing is, though, is that whenever we serve, we can say this about ourselves. We are children of God. We have been bought by a price. We have the Christ's atonement upon the cross. We have all these things. So what can anybody take away from us? Our money, our position, our pride, all these things are not important in God's eyes. So when we serve, we are not diminishing who we are. As a matter of fact, we are, we are rediscovering who and what we actually are. The second lesson I think we can take from this is when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. The stance of a servant washes pride and selfishness from our hearts. The, the reason why people don't serve is because they're so busy, they're so, and again, insert whatever reason there. But what Jesus teaches us is that when we serve, when we submit ourselves to somebody else, we are taking the pride that's in our lives and we are pushing it down. One of the things you'll find with the spiritual discipline series is that when you start living these disciplines out, what you realize is pride and arrogance and self-importance is beaten down. And that's when we understand Christ-likeness, right? Our culture wants to rise that up within us, and our rights and our, our this and that, and we talk all about our self-importance. 
Well, Christianity is take up your cross and follow me. And so what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to push those parts of our lives to the very bottom so that he can be glorified. So the stance of a servant washes pride and selfishness from our hearts. Also, another lesson I think we learn is when Jesus says, now you, you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Serving allows us to access the deepest truth of our Savior. Like, it's incredible to me when you think about how many times Jesus submitted himself. Like, of course, next week, uh, not, not, sorry, not next week, next, um, next year, of course, is Easter, and we're going to come to the Easter season, right? That is the most beautiful example of submission. Jesus allowed people to beat him, to spit upon him, to ultimately to crucify him. This, this is God. This is, this is the, the, the person that spoke creation into existence. That same individual is going to allow the insects on this planet called humans to, to abuse and to hurt him that way, right? That we, we will never really understand what, what, what Jesus is trying to teach us if we do not adopt the stance of a servant. And finally, the last lesson I think we, we learn is when Jesus says, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. It's not optional. It's not like like when you look through Jesus' teaching from the four gospels. It's not often that Jesus says, "Now do this." Oftentimes, he'll teach in a parable. He'll lay it out before you and say, "Well, what do you want to do with that?" Right? How are you going to take that truth and adopt it in your life? Very rarely did Jesus say, "You should do this." Yeah, this is a good idea. You should probably do this. In this particular instance, Jesus says, "I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you." However you want to modify Jesus, this is the one clear indication you cannot get away from. And what's interesting is the early church historically has always been servants. We have one of the things that we are rediscovering within social justice and this idea of saying, you know, let's get out there with the poor, the impoverished. That's, that's rightfully so. But if you do your history well enough, you go back to the first three centuries of the early church, that's what we did. We would, we would take in orphans and widows. We would serve people. We'd feed them. We'd clothe them. That's what we did. That was part of our identity. Why? Because that's what our Savior did for us, right? So we talk about serving, and you can be saying to yourself, well, you know, I'm really busy, or this semester is really killer for me, or whatever. It's not optional. It's not optional. You want to understand Jesus. You want to live like Jesus. It's not optional. A guy by the name of Richard Foster, who I've been kind of reading a lot in this series, he says this about this moment. Then Jesus took a towel in a basin and redefined greatness. If the cross is a symbol of submission, then the towel is the symbol of service, right? Jesus is going to the cross, and we know the cross. We, we understand the symbolism of the cross. But do you understand the symbol, symbol of the towel wrapped around his waist? And, and the thing is, though, right, we've been talking about the spiritual disciplines, and I said to you, prayer is this, and meditation, and giving, right? The, there are indicators for this, right? You get paid, you give. You pray, and I told you, and you can go back and listen to this, I want you to pray three times a day, and then I want you to pray in the Spirit as well as God would lead you. Meditation, I said to you, at least once a month, to have that, that retreat away for God to speak to you and meditate on the scriptures, right? We talked about that. Serving is the only one I can't give you a time or a phrase for that. You know why? It's supposed to be every day of our lives. It's when we are encountering need, when you see somebody that, that needs help, right? It's we say to ourselves, because I'm living under my capacity, I can now go ahead and I can serve you. I can help you. Whether it's coffee, whether it's prayer, whether it's just, you know, sitting down and listening to somebody. Maybe it's literally uh, food. If you, if you are a student and you walk into your friend's uh, apartment 
and all they have is craft dinner, go buy them a steak or something. I don't know. Just, just, just help them, right? Because these people need some real food. Maybe buy some vitamins. I don't know. Anyways, this idea of serving, I can't give you the trigger for serving except that when you see a need, you're called to fix it. You're called to, you're called to meet that need. This part of the uh, sermon is, is called the feedback part. And this is where I get to answer some questions before I close about anything I've taught on. Do you have any questions about anything I've said so far? It's pretty straightforward. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, um, it's anything that's uh, rocket science. But do you have any questions before I kind of move on here? The one question that was asked in the first service, I will tell you this, is how is UCC responding to this? And I said in the first service, and I'll say to you as well that um, when Jen was on staff, Jen who spoke last week, one of her, one of her responsibilities was to help us as, uh, as a church to be responsive in the community. We called it UCC Cares. And with her, with her departure, we have, not, um, we have not amped that part of our church back up again. But I am telling you right now, we are assembling a team of people, of individuals. I like to call them superheroes, but they won't wear capes, even though I've asked them. Um, and they're going to help us to get into the community once again. These are individuals who are passionate about, uh, about that. And they're just going to help us. We're going to meet together. And hopefully in January, we're going to be talking about some ways, some initiatives that UCC is going to get involved with uh, about doing that. We have let that lapse a little bit. And we really want to get that back into where it should be. So just to answer that question, but also to let you know about this service, we really want UCC to be a compassionate place where we are able to respond to needs. And sometimes that need is like, this person, the single mom is moving, we need to help her move. Or this person needs a winter jacket. Whatever it would be, we as a church, we can do this, right? And so when this committee is put together, when we are able to kind of have that, we are going to uh, talk a little bit about that and, and give you some opportunities for that. Let me close here. Let me bring it back to uh, this. Remember this movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Remember, George is walking around the office, and he's trying to figure out what he should do. Like, how does he save his bank, and what's that going to look like? There's a sign in the corner, and uh, you, you, he only paused there for a second. So let me kind of let me, uh, make it a little bit bigger. Sorry, it's kind of hard to see, but black and white film, not really HD, right? The sign says this. All you can take with you is that which you've given away. Right, George is walking around the office. He's about to go off on his honeymoon. He's got a he's got a, uh, some money for his him and his new wife, and he wants to go off and on a honeymoon. But he's walking around the office like, "Okay, what should I do? This is not my responsibility. This is not my problem. Right? This need is not my problem. Right?" And there's a sign just tucked in the corner here that says, "All you can take with you is that which you've given away." And you know what? I honestly believe that's kind of. Uh, I, I don't know much about the history of whoever put together the writers of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I feel they probably had some Christian undertones because of the angel and all that. But, man, this sign kind of says it all, right? Like what, what, what we accumulate, our wealth, our possessions, our power, our, our status, our prestige, these things die. Right? These things are going to get burned, right? It's only what, we, what we've given away, how we've invested in other people, how we've served other people. Let me close with the last bit of scripture. And of course, for those of you thinking about servanthood, this passage comes to mind. It comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Here's what we know about Philippians 2. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi is a Roman church. It's very Gentile, right? And we believe that the Philippians 2 was actually a hymn. They used to sing this in the early church, right? Now, Paul is trying to help this church, this, this Gentile church, to understand Jesus, right? They don't have the operating system of the Jewish uh, background, so he's trying to help them. How do you understand your Savior? And this is how he describes Jesus to them. 
Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the Jesus you serve. Jesus who, being God, right? Like, again, I don't, we, we can't even, we can't wrap our minds around the infinite nature, the beautiful nature of what God was and who God was. But Jesus decides to leave all that so that he could be spit upon by the insects and walk on this planet, right? And again, that phrasing, insects on the planet, that's from C.S. Lewis. When C.S. Lewis is trying to describe the incarnation, he says, listen, you become a slug and live among slugs, and even then, you're not even grasping a hold of what Jesus had to leave to come to us, right? Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. All we do is try to figure out how do we use this world to our advantage, right? What's my advantage? How do I get my advantage in there, right? Jesus ejected that by taking the very nature of a servant. However you understand your Christianity and your journey, wherever you are on that, here's what I need you to make sure you understand. The discipline of serving is the discipline that's going to help you to understand Christ-likeness. The ability to humble yourself, to serve somebody who can never repay you, who can never give anything back to you, is the very core of, of the character and nature of Jesus. We talk about Jesus in different ways and terms, but unless you understand him as a servant and yourself as a servant... There is no better way to destroy your pride and your selfishness than, 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 than leaving your comfortness, maybe getting up early in the morning, maybe using your own resources to help somebody. That humbles you, and then that helps you to be transformed into Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you. I, I glorify you for what you have done for us. You left your heavenly realms to come to us. You walk amongst us. And Christmas is coming and we are thinking about the incarnation. But Lord, in the thought of that, you took the nature of a servant. You served me. I did not deserve to be served. I am not worthy of serving. But yet, Lord Jesus, you saw me. You saw us. And you decided that you wanted to serve us by leaving that and coming to us. God, I pray <coughs> that we, your children, would be servants as well. To serve one another, as you've called us, serving the family of God, the church, but also serving those who, have, who can never repay us, strangers we might meet, people you've brought along our past, co-workers, students, whoever would be God. Let us be, let us have the stance of a servant, willing to serve, ready to serve, those you place in our way, God. And God, help us to humble ourselves to do so. And when we do that, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd speak to us. You would change us. You would transform us into your image, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for wrapping that towel around your waist. But Lord, I take that towel and I wrap it around my waist now so that I'm able to serve as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.